book of Revelation. Love it. Well, first of all, uh, one of the things that the elders and I, dis- elders, all of us have discussed, is we just want to start off with each sermon saying, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. And I believe it's soon. That's why I got to finish the sermon before two o'clock for the rapture. So I prepare you to be in the throne room of God. You laugh, but it could happen. Uh, and the reason that we're undertaking this book is one, there's a special blessing attached to it. It's the only book in the Bible that says, read me, I'm special. It's the only book in the Bible that says you will receive a blessing to those who read it and obey it. Two, Jesus told us in Matthew 24, 20, 21, 24, excuse me, to always be ready. To be ready to meet the Lord at any moment when he comes. We're to always be prepared. You ever heard the term, it's better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it? That's kind of the thought there. So he's coming back soon. And I can't wait for the day. It's going to be glorious. There was a king named King Humpert, who was the king of Italy from 1878 until his assassination in 1900. And during his reign, Italy faced several outbreaks of cholera, which is a highly contagious bacterial disease that spreads through contaminated food and water. In 1884, a major cholera outbreak occurred near Naples, Italy, which rapidly spread to other parts of Italy. King Humpert responded to the outbreak by sending a team of medical experts to the affected areas to assess the situation and coordinate a response. He also ordered the establishment of quarantine measures and distribution of medical supplies and resources to all the affected communities. King Humpert's response to the cholera outbreak was actually widely praised and his leadership was credited with helping contain the spread of the disease and he saved many lives. Even amongst the great political adversity which he faced and was mounting, there was a mounting insurrection against his kingship, even from the people within his own cabinet, King Humpert actually stepped down from his throne and and went throughout all the hospitals in Naples and he actually ministered to the dying and the sick with comfort and prayer. This made a huge impression on the people of Italy and what was once opposition actually turned into a deep love for their king because he indeed proved himself a worthy king and began, and then he began removing all those who were opposed to him. In a sense, like King Humpert, our King Jesus stepped down from his throne to handle a deadly outbreak And that outbreak was sin and death. And he humbled himself and he dealt with the disease that we all carry and that we all bear. And he did it and he condemned it even in his own body, as it says there in Romans 8, chapter 3, or excuse me, chapter 8, verse 3 and 4. And now that he has dealt with sin, we see here in Revelation chapter 5 the beginning of removing those who oppose him. This chapter describes the legal right that he has to take over the universe and the planet Earth and finish the redemption 
of which he started. The focus of chapter 4 is on the throne of God. It's the first thing that John sees when he's called up to heaven, and it is the center of all creation. Everything God does is administered from his throne. And you need to learn about this throne because whenever you and I pray, this is precisely where our prayers go before the throne of God. We see this throne in Ezekiel 1, Isaiah 6, Revelation 4 and 5, and other places as well. Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus gave us access to our high priest to enter that throne room anytime, day or night. But now the focus shifts in here in chapter 5 from the throne of God to this scroll in the right hand of the Father. What is this document that he is holding? What significance does it have? Well, look with me. Verses 1 through 3, I think. Yeah, verse 1 through 3. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back. Notice that. Within and on the back. Both sides. Sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Some of your translations might say book. But actually, this this is actually a scroll. This is This is how they did legal documents in ancient Israel. If like other scrolls in John's day, it was made by it was made out of 8 by 10 inch sheets of papyrus. Don't get that confused with the font. <laughs> Somebody should I, when Jesus comes back, that font will be done away with and thrown in hell. <laughs> oh gosh. I went to this church one time where you know, all of it was just papyrus, like papyrus. It was it was a apostate church. Um, anyway, so it was made by eight by ten sheets of papyrus, which connected horizontally and wound around a wooden handle. And epistles uh, um, the size of Jude, Philemon, Second and Third John would all be written on one single sheet of papyrus. The Book of Revelation, on the other hand, would require fifteen long. Uh, sheets uh, of papyrus. Uh, due to the coarse back of the papyrus, the three-inch wide columns of writing were penned only on the smooth side of the papyrus. It was the only way you could write it. Here, however, we see a scroll written on both sides and sealed with seven seals. So here's this strange document in the right hand of God. And we know based on the text, it has extreme importance. Otherwise, God the Father would not be holding it in his right hand. And we know that it's so important that when nobody was found worthy to open the scroll, John begins to weep. In fact, the word weep there in the Greek literally means sob convulsively. So John knew exactly what this document was. So what is it about this scroll that makes it so important? Why is all of heaven fixed upon it? And what could this possibly be? Well, there are some that think the scroll was the Old Testament, the Old and New Testaments together, or fulfilled prophecy. And these ideas look back, not necessarily forward. And John wrote of the things related to things which must take place after this Metatauta, Revelation 4, verse 1. Who knows? Some think the scroll was God's claim of divorce against Israel. 
but there's really little scriptural evidence to support this idea. I've read that some scholars think that this scroll was God's sentence against the enemies of the church. Perhaps that's true. Some think the scroll was the text of the book of Revelation or the next few chapters. After all, later on in the book, uh, John eats the scroll and it was sweet in, in his mouth as, as honey. Um, and that, that could also be the case. But I want to suggest to you, this is what I believe that this scroll is, and, and I would encourage you to do your own study and come to your own conclusion. But I'm going to suggest to you that this scroll is none other than the title deed to planet Earth. I'll tell you why I believe that. Title deeds in ancient Israel were written on parchment or papyrus scrolls and contained information about the property being transferred, such as its location, its boundaries, and any other relevant details. The text was written in ink, usually in Hebrew or Aramaic, and included the names of the parties involved in the transaction as well as the witnesses who could testify to the, the validity of the transfer of the property. The, a title deed was typically rolled up and sealed with a wax seal, which would be impressed with the signet ring of the seller. The seal was a form of authentication to ensure that the document could not be tampered with. It's kind of like those seals, you know, when you, whenever you break open a bottle of juice and you have to take off the, the seal in order to drink it, it's kind of the similar concept. So in some cases, the title deed would also include a description of any structures on the property, such as buildings or wells or cisterns. And these details were important for determining the value of, pro of the property and for resolving any disputes that might arise in the future. So overall, with the specific format and style of the title deeds in ancient Israel have a wide variety uh, of, of methods and time and place, but they were generally written documents that provided a legal record of property ownership. Now, initially, here's what's key, and I'll get into this more. The terms and conditions of the title deed would be written on the smooth side of the papyrus, and it was sealed with a seal. However, if the owner of the property was unable to meet his financial obligations, he would relinquish his deed by writing the terms of the debts that he owed on the backside or the rough side of the papyrus. And that there were instructions on the backside uh, to let the uh, perspective uh, inheritor know that this is what you must do to take back your property. We actually see this played out in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 6 through 15. Jeremiah was actually in prison because he was prophesy prophesying things to the king of Israel, like things that he didn't like, like you're going to be carried away for 70 years, just so you know, if you don't repent. <laughs> the Lord instructs Jeremiah to buy his uncle's field there in Israel, knowing that the captivity was coming in, ba in Babylon. So the question is, why would the Lord have Jeremiah buy this field, knowing that he would die of old age before he even had a chance to redeem it? This was God's way of promising Jeremiah that the remnant 
will return to the land as he had promised. And this was God's way of showing Jeremiah that he always keeps his promises. And sure enough, just like God said, Jeremiah's cousin shows up in the prison, sells the deed to Jeremiah. Then Jeremiah orders that the, that the title deed be sealed and stored in earthen jars so that when his descendants return to the land in 70 years, as he promised, he could remove the deed and reclaim the land, the property that rightfully belongs to his descendants. Are you starting to get the picture here of this document? In the right hand of the Father, it goes on. How does this apply to the scroll in God's right hand? Well, ownership and title was originally given to Adam and Eve. Genesis 1, verse 28. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God commanded Adam and Eve to image him, to image him by spreading out all over the earth and multiplying and having dominion. He gave them the legal right to have dominion over planet earth. He created man as his representatives on earth to image his goodness by caring for God's creatures, plants, animals, life. He blessed us to exercise creativity and imagination as we have dominion over all the earth. And this pleased God very much. Now, God doesn't need us to partner with him, but he enjoys when we partner with him. Now, understand that about your life, brothers and sisters, know that God created you so that you will partner with him in his decisions and in the family business. That's why you're here. You have the ability within God's will to change his mind. That's an amazing thing. That's an amazing thing. Now, I'm not saying that God comes to your beck and call and every and your every whim. That's not what I'm saying. But within his will, you have the ability to partner with him. Moses did. God was going to wipe out the nation of Israel. Moses said, far be it from you, Lord, that you, you know, I don't want the nations to say that you just you took all these people out to Egypt just to destroy them. What would that do to your name? See, Moses was concerned about God's reputation. And the Bible says that God relented. That's an amazing thing. That's incredible that he would ask you and me to partner with him in the family business. That is wild. He made you a part of the family business. You're not here just to take up space. This is not the waiting room for heaven. He's got something for you to do. Whether it's at work, at school, Friday Arts Project, being a mom, dad, whatever, you're a part of that plan. I heard Pastor Chuck Smith say this once, and it just blew my mind. He said, without him, you can't. But without you, he won't. That's an amazing thing. So what happened? Our first parents decided 
What they had was not enough. So they forfeited their right to dominion over the planet Earth by consuming the forbidden fruit. They disobeyed. And in doing so, they gave all property ownership rights over to Satan and his adversaries. They now had dominion over the planet, enslaving mankind to their rule and authority to have dominion and power. The title deed had transferred over to the devil and his fallen ones. Now, how do I know this? Because we see this face-off that Jesus has with Satan in the wilderness. And Satan tempts Jesus in this way in Luke 4, verses 5 through 8. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me. The prince of the power of the air, it's been delivered to Satan. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So we see here that Satan attempts to avert God's plan of salvation by giving Jesus dominion back over the planet Earth. It's all going to be yours anyway. Why go through the cross? What's the point? You don't have to go through all that pain. You're going to get it all back anyway. I'll just give it to you now. You know what's interesting? Jesus never refuted his ownership. Not once. But what happened at the cross? Jesus took candy away from a baby. He took that authority away from the fallen ones. Colossians 3.15 He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. 1 Corinthians 2.8 None of the rulers of this age understood this for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They would not have given up their authority over planet Earth. Had the rebellious fallen spiritual beings known that their authority would be stripped. They never would have gone through in killing Jesus. But now those who repent and turn to Christ are transferred from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light and there's nothing that the forces of darkness can do about it. They have been, their, their lion's teeth, they have been degummed. Brothers and sisters, please know that not only are your sins forgiven for his name's sake, but he has disarmed the rulers and authorities over you. If you struggle with sin and maybe abhorrent thoughts, know that this could be the adversary deceiving you. That's because that's all he can do if you are in Christ. You can renounce those things and give dominion back over to Christ. Have you had sexual sin in your past? Renounce sexual acts of immorality and bring your sexuality under the authority of Christ. What about substance or alcohol abuse? Renounce those rulers of divination or occultic practices within drug use and bring them under the authority of Christ. Do you struggle with codependency, anger, resentment, bitterness, 
renounce that authority over you and give it back to Christ. Look at verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seal? So this mighty angel makes this pronouncement, basically saying, who has met the terms of the debt written on the scroll? Who has rightful ownership over these things? Verse 3 and 4. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So John was given a supernatural vision to see whether anyone in heaven or on earth or even in the underworld was worthy to open the scroll. Notice it's not someone willing. It's someone worthy. Alexander the Great was willing. Napoleon was willing. Hitler was willing. There have been lots of people who said, I'm willing, to, I'm willing to be in power. Give me a crack at it. It's not who's willing. The angel asks who's worthy. And this struck me. Somehow, someway, John knew, looking throughout the cosmos, there was no other way. I find God does that with, with us in our lives. He'll allow us to look for solutions everywhere to the problems we're trying to solve in our lives until he gets us to the point where we simply just exhaust every resource and he waits for us to just give up and say, you know, Lord, I'm just going to trust in you. The answer to our problems is never a philosophy or a solution or a prowess. The answer is always a person. It's the person of Jesus. So where are you, where am I looking right now to solve our problems? Are you getting tired? Are you worn out? Maybe Jesus is calling you just to rest in him and simply trust that he will be faithful. So John, from his perspective, is not seeing anyone who could fulfill the terms of the debt and take rightful ownership of the deed, and he begins to weep. Again, the Greek word means sob convulsively. If no one was around to take the scroll, then Satan would have total control over the earth forever. And there was nothing that could be done. Ah, but look at the next verse. Verse five. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has Conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So one of God's divine council members, one of his elders comforts John and dries his tears by pointing to Christ, the lamb that was slain. The lamb that was slain, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And this takes us back to Genesis 49, where Jacob was proclaiming uh, prophecies over each one of his 12 children. And he, he calls, uh, Jacob calls his 12 sons together and he comes to Judah and Jacob likens him to what's called a lion's whelp. And then says that power and authority will not disappear until Messiah comes. 
Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. If Judah was a cub in Genesis 49, he's now the king of beasts in Revelation 5. Jesus was born in the house and the lineage of David. He is the root of David. This speaks of Isaiah chapter 11, where he was a root that shot out of the descendants of David. These are messianic Jewish terms. I understand why you're weeping, John, said the angel, but this won't go on forever. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has prevailed. Amen to that. The terms of the debt of our liberation from slavery to the powers and the principalities of the world would require precious, sinless blood. Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Jesus met that requirement and he disarmed the unseen powers. He shed his blood and he fulfilled the debt and met the terms of the deed. He is worthy. And Jesus' appearance in heaven is a slain lamb with seven horns. It's a little bizarre. However, horns in scripture represent power and authority. The fact that Jesus has seven of them means he has perfect and complete power and authority. The seven eyes identifies with the seven spirits before God's throne. Back there, it's a Holy Spirit, reference to the Holy Spirit there uh, in chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. And these speak of the Lamb's perfect knowledge that extends throughout the whole earth. It speaks of his fullness of spirit. For those who has despised the days of small things, it says in Zechariah, for these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. Oh, how true that is for us. Brothers and sisters, next time you weep and wail over your circumstances, what is the best thing we can do? The best thing that you can do is go before your father in the throne room that you have access to and take a long, hard look at the lamb that was slain. Oh, how we need to survey the scars upon him in heaven to really get a sense of reality here on earth. And you know, the scars that he bears in heaven are the only man-made things in heaven. Because he loves us so much. There was an orphan boy living with his grandmother when their house caught fire. And the grandmother, trying to get upstairs to rescue the boy, she actually perished in the flames. The boy's cries for help were finally answered by a man who climbed up an iron drain pipe and came back down with the boy hanging tightly to his neck. Several weeks later, there was a public hearing to determine who would receive custody of the child. There was a farmer, there was a teacher, there was the town's wealthiest citizens. They all gave reasons why they felt they should be chosen to give the boy a home. But as they talked, the lad's eyes remained focused on the floor. And then a stranger walked in to the front and slowly took his hands from his pocket and revealed the severe scars on them. It was the man who had rescued the boy. The crowd gasped and the boy cried out in recognition. 
This was the man who had saved his life. His hands had been burned when he climbed up that hot pipe to save him. And with a leap, the boy threw his arms around the man's neck and held on for dear life. The other men silently walked away, leaving the boy and his rescuer alone. Those marred hands had settled the issue. Jesus Christ, the lamb that was slain, stands before the throne of God in heaven with the scars that he bears, and that just speaks louder than words. Verse 8, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. You can imagine when Jesus steps forward and he takes the title deed and takes ownership that heaven just explodes in praise. Job 38.7 tells us that God's angels, the cherubim, the seraphim, shouted for joy and worshipped when God created the heavens and the earth. But here we see the divine and God's spiritual hosts singing a new song of redemption. Not the same song. And you notice the golden bowls full of incense. These heavenly hosts offer up our prayers to our Father. This is a picture of what happens right now. They're concerned over our welfare. As they offer, they they collect our prayers and they offer them up to our, our Savior. They long for us to be fully redeemed as much as God does. What a precious truth that they want to help us get through the trials of life. You see, when God initially created creation... He created the spiritual to overlap with the physical. I'm indebted to Michael Heiser. I don't don't have an original thought, just so you know. But Michael Heiser says that the, the spiritual and the physical world overlapped and God in all of his creation dwelt together as one family. And that's what we're headed towards. That's wild. (laughs) And that's his intention. What a paradox. The lion won the victory as a slain lamb, slain lamb by his blood. He chose to win by losing. He chose to win by losing. And that's exactly how he's called us to live our lives. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We are called to die every day to our desires and our pleasures for the sake of him. It's when we do that, we find life. And notice the, the, the text also says that, he, that Jesus made us a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. In the Old Testament, priests were handpicked by God to act on behalf of him 
and to offer blood sacrifices on behalf of the people. So the office was limited. But now because of Jesus and his once and for all sacrifice, he has chosen you to be his priest. We don't offer sacrifices the way they did in the old covenant, but we offer spiritual sacrifices of praise and adoration and to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light. Those are the sacrifices that please him. The, in the old covenant meant that there was limited access to God from the earthly tabernacle. But now because Christ made you a priest, you have full access to his heavenly tabernacle. Instead of sacrificing bulls and lambs in the old covenant, we now offer sacrifices of praise in the new covenant. So in verses 11 and 12, the choir expands from the cherubim and the elders before the throne to the millions of angels around the throne. This, look at this scene. Look at this picture. What does true worship look like? Is it when we sing songs or, or when a worship leader or a pastor gives an exhortation? Is it the smoke machine that goes off at the crescendo of the band? Now, worship is response to the slain lamb. You, you, picture the, you picture John, who's writing this book. He's on the island of Patmos. History tells us that Titus Domitian tried to boil him in oil, and God delivered him. So they banished him to Patmos, this dry desert island. He had no bulletin, no incredible website or app to look from. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, he had no guitar, no piano, no nothing. And Revelation chapter 1 says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I'm going to choose to worship Christ because he's worthy. Because he's worthy. I think the church in America today, we've come to a place where we worship worship. We're more after a, a feeling or an experience. And there's nothing wrong with feelings or experience. But when that's our sole purpose, we can get in a lot of trouble. But it's when we just gaze upon him. I read where a church offered a seminar for $8,000 on how to build a large megachurch. I thought this was about the kingdom. I thought this was about spreading the gospel. It was more corporate. It had absolutely nothing to do with Yahweh as the object of our affection and more to do with an environment that fostered entertainment. But at the center of heaven is the throne and the one who was slain for us. I remember when I was 17, I was, new, I was freshly saved. And I just remember I could not get enough of Jesus. I, my parents would go to the early service, like 9 o'clock, and we would worship. And then I would stay for the second service. And then I would stay on campus, and I'd go and I'd get some lunch, and then I would sit on the lawn. And there were groups of people that used to sit on the lawn and just, you know, kind of like 
the, the whole fish and loaves scenario where people were just sitting in groups. And, we, and, and somebody with a guitar was worshiping and praising and we just praised the Lord. Not because it was a got to, but, but because it was a get to. And it was just, it was amazing. And then come, you know, we're sitting there worshiping, fellowship. All of a sudden it's 5.30, it's time for prayer. So we go and pray for a half an hour. Then we go to the six o'clock service. And it was just, you just could not get enough of Jesus. So worship is when you just are in awe and wonder of him. Awe and wonder of him. In verses 13 and 14, he says, he heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea in all that is in them that they were giving glory and honor and blessing. Then John sees that everyone in all creation started to bow to Jesus at the moment he takes the scroll. It was upon him taking the scroll that the explosion of worship begins, the transfer of ownership takes place, and everyone at that moment knows he's in charge. You know that verse in Philippians, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is when it happens. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. And while the church is tucked away with Jesus there in heaven, in Revelation 5, I'll give you a little sneak preview next week. Jesus begins to open the seals of the document. And begin to execute judgment over the over a Christ rejecting sinful world. And he is beginning to evict the residents. <laughs> and so, in closing, if you go to Niagara Falls, there's a spot that takes a huge leap over a precipice of 160 feet. Between the face of that precipice and the overlapping sheet of water which forms the falls, there's a vacant space called the Cave of the Winds. The guides actually will robe you head to foot foot in plastic coverings and lead you down into this cave underneath the falls. You follow slowly and cautiously as you make your way literally under the falls, and finally you reach the stopping point. Underneath the falls, thousands of tons of water are rushing over that precipice with thunderous roar and a blinding splash of spray and mist. Now, if you were down where it falls, you'd be crushed to death by the sheer weight and force of the water. But though you're standing in what seems to be a dangerous place, you're actually perfectly safe in that cave. Because it's like a, this great veil of watery death passes over. But it totally avoids you. You are safe because you are a passed over man or a woman of Christ. And this is a picture of the redemption, which is in Christ for us as we as the church will stand in heaven, my opinion, will stand in heaven protected from the fiery judgment of his wrath and celebrate his taking ownership of all that belongs to him. I can't wait. I can't wait. Are you ready to meet him? I look forward to that day. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, so much.
There's coming a day when all will be yours, when you will make all things new. And we won't have to vote for another president or struggle with pain or sickness or sorrow, but that we'll be fully in your presence. And that's what this book means. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for taking the scroll on our behalf and taking ownership over us. You were worthy to be praised. In Jesus' name, amen.